At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining you, as always, is my colleague, Joe Healy, and we are here. Uh, it is the 13th of July, as uh, as we record this, uh, just a few days before the start of the Major League Baseball draft. We're going to get into some, uh, some draft preview here on the podcast. We're going to talk about Joe's uh, list of the top 50 transfers in college baseball this summer and uh we've got some college baseball news from around the country to get to as well and millie uh as always has some thoughts already as you can hear uh so we've got got a lot to get to here on the podcast today um and i will say before we really dive into any of this that if you are looking for draft information like joe and i are going to look at the draft from a college baseball perspective today but if you're looking to really dive in, you absolutely can do that at Baseball America, uh, the BA 500, the list of the 500 uh, best draft prospects in the 2022 draft is up. There are scouting reports for all 500 players. I would encourage you to dive into that. If you start reading that by the time you stop listening to this show, uh, maybe by the time the draft starts on Sunday, you'll be through number 450 or something. Uh, it, it is very extensive. There are a lot of them, Carlos and the team. Uh, put a lot of effort into that. So if you're looking to find out about the, the players, that is absolutely the best way to do it. There's plenty of other draft-related content that you can read to get yourself up to speed or, or to dive in on this draft class. Uh, so I'd encourage you to seek that out if uh, if that's what you're after. If you're after more of a surface level, how this affects college baseball kind of thing, uh, Joe and I are here to help you with that today uh, and talk about some other things as well. So uh, a lot to get to on today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast, Joe. I like that that was a little bit of a um, little bit of a manager expectations kind of warning at the beginning <laughs> for like the draft because like it, it, it's just different. Like it's not that we're uninformed; it's just a different standpoint on it. So like we're not. It is good to manage expectations of we're not really here to like chop it up on you know, which, which arm is going to, you know, it's going to, they're going to reach for and shouldn't, or, you know, what we're hearing about, you know, who's moving up and down. Like Carlos has that covered really well. There there, there are others, uh, you know, who uh, on staff who are are doing a good job of that kind of thing. That is, that is not what this will be. Yeah. I, Um, I am not here to tell you who the Orioles are selecting nor who they should select. Right. But you know, I don't know. But, but no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not here to do that. <laughs> I am definitely not. They should probably just. Uh, they should pick the guy who's going to be a Hall of Famer, whoever that is. I don't know who it is, but that's what they should do. Cal um, Ripken Jr. Here he's right. pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> they would also take like a. Well, this is actually funny. I was going to use the example of B.J. Serhoff, but he actually was a first overall pick, wasn't he? Uh, I believe yeah, that's that right? correct. Yes, in the '80s. Yeah. Um, but uh, that, I mean, that is an interesting thing. Side note: This is just a total side note. Like, I think this is true in all sports. Maybe 
the NBA has like a higher hit rate in general. I mean, baseball is the lowest hit rate because you have to you have to traverse the minor leagues. There's just a whole lot more friction to getting to stardom. But um, you know, teams look at the first overall pick and think like future star, anything but multiple All Star games and borderline Hall of Fame case is probably like a little bit disappointing. When the reality is like you should really just be hoping for like a good solid regular. Um, that's kind of just true early in the draft generally, but people always expect, we've talked about this before. I think, or Carlos has talked about this before where it's like where player comps are kind of tricky is that everyone wants to hear that the player that you're comping for is like an all-star type player, but like some player in the big leagues has to be just an average player. So like, you know, you comp players to guys who are just like meh and people think that means he's bad, but really it's just that not every player is going to turn into a perennial all-star, but anyway, that's neither, neither here nor there. But what I was going to say on a larger point is it does feel like that for a number of different reasons, which I'm sure we've covered extensively on previous podcasts through the last several years, but the draft does seem a little more pertinent to college baseball, a newsy in college baseball is maybe the better way to put it. You know, in the old 40 round draft, Maybe it was just that they'd done that for so long. I mean, it used to be longer, obviously, but with that big draft, you kind of understood the game. Um, you know, also there was a time when when players weren't choosing college at quite such a large, a high clip, a high rate. Now with a shorter draft, um, more players choosing the college route for a variety of reasons, it does kind of feel like the draft is a little more of a news item from a college baseball standpoint, where I can remember as recently as, you know, just five to seven years ago, there might be one or two teams that are notable on the higher low end. Either they lost more than they thought they were going to lose, or they're going to get back more than they thought they were going to get back. There were a couple of those, but most years kind of went exactly as you would expect. I, I, there's a little more movement. It feels like now in the drafts, so there, there's a, if you're just a college baseball fan, there is a little more to watch and to kind of game out than there, than there used to be in the draft. And that's based on just me, my hunch here, but um but that, that's kind of my feeling of where we are in the draft. So if you're just a college baseball fan, there, there is a reason beyond just seeing players from your team get drafted. There is a little more to watch again at, uh, at play here. I am interested. I, it, it, that's an interesting thing to note. And I think that's generally true, but I, I think that's been especially true the last two years. Uh, and I'll be interested to see if it's true again this year. In 2020, it was obviously that way because they only had five rounds. So like any player that got drafted, they all signed. And, you know, you kind of knew that was going to be the case going into it, that with only five rounds in the draft, you couldn't afford to take any risks. You had to know. And with only five rounds, there were going to be a lot of players coming back to college or entering college that ordinarily wouldn't. And then last year, they took a long time to decide that it was only going to be 20 rounds. And, um, there are all these excess players because there had only been this five round draft and how is that going to work itself out and, and all the rest of that. Well, now this year it's been known to be a 20 round draft for much longer. Although again, it did take a little while to get there because of the CBA uh, negotiations. Um, there are still excess players in some respects and other respects. Those are starting to clear through just how is this all going to work in this this new system? Um, so I, I think that is one of the, the interesting aspects of it is, are they, you know, ha have any of the various tweaks or just the more experience with the 20 round draft has that gotten us more to a place where it was before where there would be less, uh, 
or more surprises or less surprise, you know, whatever. Uh, I, I will be interested to see, see how that shakes out this year. But regardless, I think you're right, Joe, that the draft just has taken on a larger meaning with uh, as more players have chosen college, either coming back to college, uh, you know, as, as a draft eligible player coming back. And that's especially true right now with players having still having that extra year of eligibility due to the canceled 2020 season uh, or just high school players choosing to develop in college baseball. And of course we think that's only going to become more prevalent uh, with the, the, the shrunk version of the minor leagues. We saw that for the first time last year, but again, last year was a little bit of a different draft. We'll see again, how true that is uh, this year. Uh, Starting this weekend, the draft, uh, some pertinent information on, I guess the draft is that it starts on Sunday with the first two rounds. I think they're going 80 picks between the first two rounds and the comp rounds. And there's an extra pick in there for something. Anyway, I'm pretty sure it's 80 picks uh, on the first night as they go two rounds plus, and then they come back on Monday with uh, the rest of the top 10 rounds. And then on Tuesday uh, with 11 through 20, you can watch uh, the first day of the draft on MLB Network, and you can watch Carlos Colazzo as a uh, part of the broadcast. So uh, that is that is where we are advising you to watch the draft. Obviously, uh, you can you can also watch on ESPN, but uh, check out MLB Network because uh, you can see our Carlos Colazzo as part of part of that broadcast. Um, I, I guess in here made for TV. You know, definitely better than you and me in in that department. No doubt, no yeah. doubt. Carlos very telegenic. I get that. I get that feedback from him all the time. Like I'll be um, Carlos no longer lives in the Carolinas. Uh, much like Teddy has 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 moved out in in recent years. But um, you know, spent a lot of time in this area. So the scouts here know him well. I mean, most scouts do just because he talks to a lot of them. They see him on TV. Yada yada yada. But uh, I remember when I first moved in here, moved here, and like I'd introduce myself to, to scouts in the scouting section. They would hear that I was from BA and they would, you know, invariably make some comment about Carlos. And oftentimes it was based around like good head of hair that kid has, you know, that was always the, uh, that was often the feedback I got, but uh, plays well on TV as they, as maybe a scout would say it plays well. Plays up, plays up. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, okay. So, you know, again, we're not here to talk about who the Orioles are taking at one or any of the rest of, you know, those kinds of things. So there are some interesting college storylines within the draft. One of which I guess is not who is going to be the first college player taken, because it seems like everyone is expecting at this point that to be Brooks Lee uh, from Cal Poly, though Kevin Parada, maybe Gavin Cross, um, you certainly have a chance to, to get in there depending on how the, the draft works out. Uh, maybe a better question, though, is who's going to be the first college pitcher taken because there were I don't know if you heard this, Joe, I feel like not enough people were talking about it. There were a lot of pitching injuries this year to uh, to top arms. Did did you hear anything about that this year? I heard like a whisper of it. It was very like uh, very hush hush. But, yeah, it wasn't probably an underreported story, frankly. But, <laughs> yeah, it's um, that I mean, that's even for someone like me who's very. I mean, I guess I can't say I'm ignorant on the draft because like it, I'm privy to our conversations in Slack at a bare minimum. But even someone like me who is very much more of a normie about the draft than 
you know, than some other, like then Car- Carlos certainly, and even some others on staff, because I just don't, frankly, because I don't know the high school draft class as well as, as others, but um, like, yeah, that, I mean that even for someone like me, like that is very much front of mind about what, how it shakes out. Um, and I'm, I'll be fascinated to see what, you know, not just who the first guy is, but how do teams approach it? Do they reach for college pitchers just because it's like, well, we need a, you know, traditionally college pitchers are a pretty fruitful well to pull from. So do we reach for the guys who are actually healthy? Do we just pretend like the guys we liked before the season that got hurt? Do we were just kind of pretend like they didn't get hurt and draft where we think they should be drafted? I mean, there's really everything, or do we, do we just not bother this year and just punt it? and just pick out position players or high school arms or, or whatever it is and, and punt it to next year. I think there's just really no shortage of ways a team could go. And I think we're going to see all kinds. I mean, on the, the BA 500 right now. And I think by the time you listen to this, Carlos, it will have tweaked the list is my understanding, but it's just a tweak. So I don't really anticipate that what I'm about to say changing right now, the, top-ranked college pitcher, Joe, I, I'm going to guess that you don't know precisely. So where do you think the top-ranked college pitcher is ranked on the 500? Okay, on the 500, okay. Uh, 21. It is 22, and that's Gabriel Ooh, Hughes of close. Gonzaga. Uh, now, it could be, however, uh, so like that that's the truest answer. Uh, but Zach Neto's 16, and he's pitched. <laughs> And Chase Delato's 19, yeah. and he's pitched too. So, you know, like those are going to be the first college pitchers taken is, is probably Zach Neto. Um, but the the true, the actual, like will be drafted as a pitcher is Gabriel Hughes, 22. And Kamar Rocker is 20, and he's not a college pitcher. Like we are classifying him as other because he did not play college this year. He played uh, independent league baseball, so that's not how we'll classify it. But if you want to think of Kamar as a college pitcher still, that's fine. He's 20. And uh, then it's Hughes at 22 and, and Cade Horton at uh, 23. And what a remarkable rise that has been because a month ago, uh, I'm not even sure he was on the 500. So I, it's uh, this is the, this is the college pitching class. So who's going to be the first is, you know, like I, if you draft off of the 500, it would be Hughes. Um, but that's not to say that somebody doesn't like, you know, some team doesn't like Jerpy more or, you know, Horton more or Wisenhunt more. Wisenhunt is, is he a college pitcher? Is he not? You know, he didn't pitch this year either, but is technically a college pitcher. Blade Tidwell, like it's, you're going to have to wait a while to hear a college pitcher's name called is, is the point. And, um, you know, we definitely talked throughout the spring about, how many injuries there were to guys like Landon Sims and, and Prelip, of course, got hurt last year and didn't come back and, and Wisenhunt, who got suspended. And uh, it's, uh, you know, Tidwell didn't start the season and, you know, how he missed the first six weeks of the year. And it's uh, it's just been a messy year. And, you know, that's definitely going to be very apparent on Sunday when, you know, you're going to be waiting a long time to hear a pitcher's name called, whether we're talking about high school or college, but especially college. Yeah, it's 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 going to be a um, with, with no real consensus about how to approach not just the individual best college pitchers on the board, but how to approach that that entire subset of players. Like it really is going to be a um, a Rorschach test for what you want to what you want to do. Um, because I, I do think there are going to be some teams that are just going to shy away. I do think there are some teams that are just going to lean heavily on 
you know, Hey, did, you know, how much did our scouts see Kate Horton late in the year, you know? Uh, and how, how much do you believe in that, you know, and, and taking some risks and, you know, when there's a consensus, it's easy, you know, it's just, you, you know, that the, the industry, as they would say, kind of just agrees on this small handful of guys. And it's just a matter of who's up first in the pecking order, but this year is going to be going to be different. You know, you mentioned that the, the, the top two guys in the, on the, the 500, you know, pitcher wise, it was, it was Hughes and who was second? Uh, Horton. Okay, well, I thought there was one between those two. Do I have that wrong? No, Hughes is 22. Horton's 23. Rocker's 20. All right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so like Hughes in particular is an interesting one. I, Thomas Harrington's a little bit like this at Campbell where those are the kind of the guys I'm talking about where it's like, don't be wrong. They were high end prospects to begin the season, but just by virtue of kind of being healthy and by, you know, <laughs> the industry kind of looking around and being like, well, I guess these are the healthy guys like their stock has, has risen. Like, so you could see those guys come off first because it's like, okay, these are healthy, long track record, relatively speaking, uh, performed this year, all that kind of stuff. You could see Kate Horton, which is like, if Kate Horton comes back as Oklahoma's Friday guy next year, for example, we know he's, he's, he's in all likelihood, not going to do that. But if he were to do that, you could project him to be like, Hey, this is like maybe a one, one kind of guy. Um, so you could fall in love with that. Um, you know, you could, you could take, you know, the rocker because like, well, that actually is track record. Um, and you know, if you, if you, if you're not concerned about the medical piece of it, so, um, it really is just going to be like, how do you, what do you value here? What do you, how are you evaluating, uh, this injured class? Um, and I, you know, I don't even think, you know, we've talked so much about what we don't know versus what someone like Carlos knows or what even the industry knows. And I, I think the answer is that we just don't know. And I think we're going to get a lot of one-off situations come Sunday and Monday. Yeah. I mean, there is no one way to approach this because, you know, in, in Kate Horton, um, you know, and I feel like I've probably talked about this on other podcasts that, you know, there's a player who has thrown less than 50 innings in college baseball was a massive prospect like very very famous coming out of high school um so nobody is going to be lacking on track record but you only saw him pitch like 50 innings in in college baseball and he knows that if he returns to school uh and bets on himself he has a chance to go in the top 10 picks next year if he proves that that he can do this over a full season you know you're talking about a guy that would contend to be the first overall pick certainly um so like, are you willing, how the, the game of chicken there between like, what are you willing to pay him now? What does he want? Where do you meet in the middle? Like all of that is, is potentially fascinating. I mean, you have a guy like rocker who has the longest track record of any of these, these uh, pitchers, but you know, obviously what happened last year with his medical situation is a thing. And that continues to be a thing that is discussed. And then you have like Landon Sims, who was incredible as a multi-inning fireman a year ago helping mississippi state win the national championship started this year really well as a starter but you only got like four starts out of him uh to to see what that looked like as a starter and you know so where do you land on that and you know prelip i think never pitched an sec inning uh because he was electric in the first four starts in 2020 and then the season was canceled and then in 2021, he started very well. And then he got injured before the SEC play began. Like, I mean, that, that that's what you're dealing with here in terms of, uh, of of track records with those guys. And 
yeah, there's so many different variables that everyone you're going to, the teams are not just going to be able to say like, Oh, look at all these Tommy John guys that had Tommy John surgery like that. It's not just that simple to say, here's that, that group of players and who do we like best out of that? Like there are a lot of things to parse within that. Um, and, and so it, it's, uh, the, the pitching aspect of this draft is, uh, is going to be quite, um, quite interesting and, and quite the storyline to follow uh, on Sunday night. As big as Sunday night is, um, you know, for the industry and for college baseball is, you know, you'll see stars like Jacob Melton and Cooper Jerpy and, you know, Drew Gilbert and, and Jacob Barry. You'll, you'll see those guys move into pro baseball and that will be very exciting for them and their families and, and, all the rest of that. One of the the biggest items for college baseball, though, is going to be what happens day two and day three. Uh, who says no to professional baseball for the year, and who either comes back to college or who decides uh, from a from a high school or junior college level that they are going to uh, go and um, go to college and, and put off professional baseball for however many years that going to college means for them. Uh, and you know, we, we saw this have a massive impact on this year's season. It has an impact on every season, but it had a massive impact this year. Think about what Ivan Melendez meant to Texas. Uh, that that's the player of the year this year, who is a pick in the teens last year by the Marlins. He chooses not to sign. He comes back to Texas and he hits 32 home runs. Like that's obviously the most extreme example you can look at, but, um, you know, Tim Elko, Chris Aline at, at Maryland, like those guys had chances, whether it was at the back of the draft or as a free agent signing, they could have gone. Instead, they come back. They have these incredible seasons. They help their teams, uh, you know, two, two incredible seasons. And uh, in Elko's case, a, a national championship. So who this year is, is going to make such a such a move is is going to be. Uh, one of the things that is most impactful on college baseball and Joe and I are not going to sit here and necessarily like predict this because I don't think that we could have necessarily predicted that Ivan Melendez was going to come back a year ago, but it is something that I think everyone is going to be very carefully watching. And uh, you know, whether it's a high school player coming to college, like a Peyton Stovall or Davis Diaz, like these guys have real impact, but the the biggest impact I think is the, the juniors or seniors Fourth, third or fourth year players who, who say no to professional baseball. I want to come back and play one more season of college baseball who, you know, have these, these outsized impacts on the following season. I think it's right. It's like the trope, um, you know, the NFL draft and the NHL draft, which I, I watched uh, a couple of days ago, let's go blues. Um, they say like, you know, round one is where you get your cornerstones, your franchise players, but like rounds, you know, certainly two through seven, but really, you know, five through seven are kind of where if you can find serviceable players, um, that's how you kind of build out your team. Similarly, it, to your point, like the those those later rounds, like the 11 through 20 rounds are really where you get those swing situations where, you know, a kid has a decision to make, you know, now with NIL money, not that the money is huge in college baseball, we know that this is, we're not gonna turn this into an NIL podcast, but, you know, certainly in the sec, there are opportunities for kids to, uh, to, to come back and not have to sign for just whatever and, and come back and play in the sec or whatever major conference and maybe make a little money on the side, whatever it is. Um, 
that's where kind of you see those those swing situations. Um, Melendez is a great example. I mean, that's, you know, and he was kind of existing in a world before a lot of that stuff, but, you know, he's drafted in the 16th round and um, thought he had something to prove and it turned Texas into, I mean, Texas flatly, especially dealing with some of the stuff they dealt with the Tanner Witt injury, Tristan Stevens, not quite being Tristan Stevens, like all that stuff. Like they probably don't survive all that. Almost certainly do not survive all that and get to Omaha without Melendez being, what he was, even if he's the Melendez, he was in 2021, which is a very good player. Like they probably aren't what they, they are without that kind of turnaround. And um, it's hard to predict. You just never know. Like I, this happens every year where I'm watching the MLB.com broadcast of rounds, you know, even really the, the top 10 rounds, you'll hear a name get pop and you're like, Oh, that was not a name I expected to hear this early. And suddenly you're like, okay, well that probably actually changes the calculus for this team. Uh, conversely, you know, this starts to be a talking point at towards the end of day two is you can really start to do the accounting of what names have we not heard? I, I famously, this was a weird draft, obviously, but, but famously, you know, Florida in 2020, when you didn't hear Leftwich and Mace's name and you were like, well, uh, I guess they're just not, this is just, isn't going to happen. I guess they're coming back. You know, um, you can really start to do the accounting of that as we, as we move on. And, and it's hard, it's hard to know. I mean, Teddy and I could sit here and look over the BA 500 and like really find out who these guys are, because once you, once you get into the late three hundreds and into the four hundreds, now you're talking the territory we're kind of talking about for tweeners and, and, you know, Texas could be one of those teams again. Like, I don't think these guys are like Ivan Melendez level turnaround guys, but guys like Doug Hodo or Eric Kennedy, like, do they certainly have tools? Do they go? Do they come back? Oklahoma State's an interesting team to kind of stick in the Big 12. Does Victor Medeiros, who has good stuff, but hasn't hasn't quite put it either at Miami or in this past year at Oklahoma State? Like he's notably, he's a he's a sophomore, and those right, guys traditionally ex- have you know you're giving up less leverage. Right. Has has you know um, some leverage to come back? Could he be like a real dude on Fridays? Like he's a guy who stands out to me as could be an Ivan Melendez level guy where blue chip recruit who just hasn't quite put it together at the college level does one more year, make the difference. But even beyond that, Roman Fanselker came on really strong late. He could come back. Caden Trinkle, an outfielder with some tools. You could even maybe talk yourself into Trevor Martin as like, what if Oklahoma state brings him back and starts him? I mean, um, Nolan if, McLean uh, yeah. is only a sophomore yeah. as well. And I think that yeah. was a late development. And also like, what is he? Is he a hitter? Is he a pitcher? Does he prefer doing one thing? You know, what is, what does professional baseball want him as probably a pitcher? Like, you know, all of these things play into that with, with McLean. Yeah. So that's a team that really sta- of the, the quick look I did, like that's the team actually, I think that stands out the most to me is just having a lot of tweeners that could go one way. And these things do tend to kind of play on themselves. Right. I mean, if, if, if all those guys get drafted, you know, between rounds eight and 20 um, and a couple of them very publicly and very quickly come back, like that does make it a little more tempting for those other guys to come back. Meanwhile, the inverse can also be true. If some of those guys sign real quick, it can kind of feel like, okay, well, you know, this is clearly the end of an era. Let's just move on. Um, So those things, those things can kind of build on themselves, but we, we, part of the beauty of it though, is that we won't really know what teams we're talking about until, it actually starts to unfold on, on um, obviously not Sunday so much, but late Monday and then into, into Tuesday. I, I think, um, you know, I, that, that's definitely true. I, I, we will not know this on Sunday. Um, but also, you know, just because you get one of these guys back doesn't mean 
everything works out in your favor. Like I'm now looking at Vanderbilt and I think they have some guys that it could fall into that situation this year, but also we saw it happen to them last year. They got Dominic Keegan back and like, because that was a really big deal for Vanderbilt. Uh, but it didn't quite gel at Vanderbilt the way you would have expected this year. But I think generally that first baseman trope might be something to watch. We saw several of those players not signed last year. Um, and then, you know, you look around and in Omaha, you had Tim Elko, you had Ivan Melendez, uh, you had Sonny Deshera, who doesn't really fit the same level, but like just you had these big first baseman slugger types who have an outsized impact in college baseball, but maybe, you know, no first baseman are not something that the draft values right now. And I think about what we're seeing in college basketball with traditional centers choosing to return because the NBA doesn't value traditional centers in the same way the college basketball does. And what, you know, the, you know, that if you follow college basketball, you know, that, you know, Oscar Chibwe, the Kentucky center, the, the player of the year is coming back to college this year. And like, that's a massive deal and, and very strange uh, just in that you have a returning national player of the year type in, in college basketball. And I wonder, like, I don't think it, it will be as impactful as it is in basketball because, you know, we're talking about baseball where one player doesn't mean as much as they do in, in hoops. But uh, I just keep, I have been thinking about that for like almost a month now. And I'm very interested to see if it happens again this year. And if that is something then moving forward that colleges can kind of count on that, like, if you have a first baseman slugger type that maybe you have a better chance to bring him back to school because maybe MLB won't, won't value him in the same way that, that you and um, your style of play does. So these are things to watch as, uh, as the draft unfolds this week, uh, anything else you want to, uh, to touch on here, Joe? No, I think that, I think that's it. I mean, I think you're onto something there with that. I mean, you also, we'll talk about the transfer portal a little later, but I think you can also see that expressed in the transfer portal by the types of guys, the types of players who end up getting opportunities at high end SEC or ACC or what have you, those types of schools, because they tend to be certain archetypes of players that get passed over in the draft. So they're in a position to have a play need to go play somewhere. They put up numbers. I mean, Sonny to share is a great example that you mentioned, but there, there are a lot of guys like this this year, as I was doing transfer coverage where they're just, they're putting up a bunch of numbers and like, yes, they're at mid-major schools. And so that you always cast a doubtful eye on that, but it's kind of the same archetype of players who is ending up going to play at, you know, Auburn or Mississippi state, uh, you know, RJ Yeager at Mississippi state, another good example. And then those guys tend to, for the most part, um, I'd actually like to go back to last year's transfer list and really do a full accounting of this, but it feels like those are the types of players that they tend to have a pretty big hit rate. Um, as they transfer up. And so I think that's true in the draft. I think it's true, you know, in, in terms of transfers that there's just certain archetypes of players that don't get valued in such a way um, that puts them in position to be recruited necessarily by the high-end programs, which obviously puts them on a path to being drafted higher or once they're in school to being drafted. Um, so I, th I think that's a, it's just kind of a really interesting um, thing that hopefully uh, you or us or wh whoever has time to actually dive into it at some point. Cause I think, there, I think there is a there there. Um, but you know, just can't say exactly how much of a there is there. 
One one more thing before we move on here is uh, you mentioned transfers. Is that this year you are also seeing the, the this uh, this group of of player who is in the portal, maybe has committed to a place, uh, but is an obvious draft risk, and is either using the portal like as a clear like leverage play. Maybe not like that makes it sound like very sinister and like they're they're using these schools as you know they're just using these schools to get more money out of out of pro teams but like i don't think in a lot of cases they mean it like quite like that but you, know, you look at it and you're like are you sure you're not just gonna sign like but i like because this is kind of the first shot that we've had at these kinds of players uh you know going through this process i will be interested to see how pro baseball treats them and how they treat it and, and all the rest of it and top of mind is Reggie Crawford um, who is leaving UConn and committed to Tennessee this week, but also right now is graded out in the BA 500 as a second round pick. And, you know, obviously he like Cade Horton has incredible upside. If he were to stay healthy, you know, he had Tommy John surgery in the fall. If he had like a full healthy season uh, next year, like what would his, draft potential be you know it's a very reasonable question to ask um so does he now now it's that he's committed to tennessee is he harder to sign is he does that not matter i don't know uh i'll be interested to see you know a player like like him jordan sprinkle going from ucsb he's committed to, to arkansas now like what does that mean um right now i would project that those guys sign but who knows and that that is kind of one of the the from a college baseball perspective players like that are are a big open question right now yeah and those those guys are hard to through no fault of their own necessarily those guys are kind of hard to to figure i mean reggie crawford by the way we didn't touch on him a ton when we talked about pitcher injuries but you want to talk about yeah, mystery of all mysteries and <laughs> that's always I mean, you, that's been my stock answer oh you mean UConn's first baseman because he threw like four innings in college or something yeah yeah I mean you're close yeah it was eight uh eight total innings struck out 17 in those eight innings and like was electric for team USA the previous you know last summer but like man you want to talk about just having to go all in on someone's potential because like that potential is immense but you want to talk about track record like there's just not much there and so even like, I mean, the hitting track record is there. Like, he showed good power. You know, you kind of, you could nitpick, like, you know, contact rate and all that stuff. But, like, the dude can hit. So, like, even if he ends up at Tennessee, it's like, what are they going to get from him on the mound? Like, the stuff is incredible. Like, the, I got nothing but raves about the stuff when I was writing up the prospect list for the collegiate national team last summer. But, like, you know, you really can't get SEC hitters out consistently. Like, with the stuff, I'd be confident the answer is yes, but like, we don't, we really don't know. Like, how, how do you even evaluate that? Like, it's, that is, that is a fascinating, fascinating piece of information that we will learn a little bit about as, as time goes on. Cause the other thing about it is too, is like Tennessee's rotation is set and like UConn was going to run him out as a starter. That's my understanding, at least. I mean, we never know how it would have played out, but he never got that chance. And, but Tennessee's rotation is set. So like, is he going to Tennessee to be a closer? um to fight for a rotation spot like i know the i'm sure there'll be competition starter is uh is a possibility i suppose and maybe that would be better to that he starts on tuesday and hits all weekend like most most teams with like viable two-way players don't have that luxury tennessee has that luxury 
Yeah, that's a good point. Like, yeah. So anyway, that, I mean, that's just like layers on layers for what's already kind of a complicated situation, but anyway, he's, yeah, we, we didn't touch on it earlier. And so, yeah, that's, I'm good that we glad that you circled back on him just because he's, he's among the most fascinating players in the entire draft, as far as I'm concerned. No doubt about that. Uh, all right. So I wish we could just like straight transition uh, from you use that as the perfect spin point from this draft preview into Joe's uh, transfer list. Uh, but alas, we have to get a commercial in here. So uh, we're going to do that here in a second. Uh, and then we'll be back to talk top 50 transfers and some uh, some college baseball news. So first, check this out. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Having a versatile, high-quality piece of clothing feels great, but having a whole closet full of favorites feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. All right. Um, let's uh, let's go to the, the transfer list, Joe. And this is something we started, I guess, last year uh, with the introduction of the transfer portal and the removal of the rule requiring players to sit a year before they are eligible to uh, to play after transferring. We uh, we now are tracking the top impact transfers every summer. Uh, we start with the top fifty list. Eventually, it grows into a hundred and um, you know, we'll see, uh, we'll see what else you, you produce out of this stuff this year, but, uh, minimally we've got a top 50 list to talk about now. And the rules of this are that you have to already be committed, uh, to, to land on this list. So for example, Paul Skeens, who is transferring from air force, uh, who is an all American is not on this list yet because he has not announced where he is going to play next year. So got to be committed to make the list um any other rules joe is is that is that basically the only rule we've got yeah that's basically uh the first rule of fight club um <laughs> which everyone knows is be yourself and have fun um 
It's the first rule of Fight Club. Um, but yeah, always yeah. So sometimes be Brad Pitt. Sometimes be um, what's his name? That other guy. Uh, yeah, that other guy. Like I, confession, I've actually never seen Fight Club. Really? Well, uh, I have. I came very close to spoiling something for you there, and uh, fortunately, I can't remember the other guy's name. So, oh, well, you right. uh, you know nothing now, and that's okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. I uh, I just know it's kind of a meme out there sometimes that people say the first rule of Fight Club is to be yourself and have fun. Because um, the actual first rule of Fight Club is to never talk about Fight Club. Right. Right. I do know that. I do know that was a definitely a definitely a thing. Um. Is that Edward Norton? Is that the other That's guy? correct. That's correct. Yes. All right. For a guy who's never seen it, look at me go. <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, Edward Norton oh, not yeah. in the transfer portal. He is not. No, he's probably doesn't have any eligibility left. Um, yeah. The only real rule is that you're committed. And like, basically, I just do that to kind of avoid having to make judgment calls on when to include players. Um, so sorry, you didn't quite make the cut. Matt Woods from Bryant, the NEC well, player of the year committed to Maryland today. So like- there's also, I, I would say part of the reason we did that last year was because you can go in the portal and just come back and at which point you haven't really transferred. And you know, why are we including you on a list? Like Jacob Wilson from Grand Canyon did like he went in the portal because there was a lot of uncertainty and ultimately Andy Stankwitz left Grand Canyon and then when they hired Greg Wallace or just promoted Greg Wallace, although he did briefly officially work for Ohio State, uh, Jacob Wilson decided to return. You know, so w- we are also avoiding that situation, I think. That's correct. I, boy, I, I hope Greg Wallace didn't sign anything when he was in Columbus. <laughs> like, like least wise, you mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, man, talk about just, uh, I mean, if, it's a good situation. Like, obviously he goes back in that situation. Everyone understands that, but it's like, man, you want to talk about like a stressful situation that you did not need, like trying to wiggle your way out of a, a lease that you just signed in Columbus, Ohio. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so yes, you're right. That is also to avoid a situation like that. I mean, you also get a lot of stuff now. Um you get a lot of guys going to the portal, just kind of Jacob Wilson was an example, but you know, not every, not everybody in this group or most of this group would have, would have qualified for this list, but you know, Tulane had like, you know, more than a dozen players in the transfer portal when Travis Jewett was fired. And the entirety of the Arizona roster entered the portal last year when Jay Johnson left because of the timing. It was like, well, either you get in the portal now or you're stuck. Right. So there is some of that as well. So like, yeah, we would have, you know, maybe written up, you know, some T.O. Banks. I don't know if we, he would have probably wouldn't have been in the 50, but like might have been in the 100, like decides to go back to Tulane. Like, OK, um, regardless. Yes. Yeah. So you just had to be committed. Um, and yes, this list will move to 100. So like while while we are calling this the best 50 transfers in college baseball, it is possible that, uh, you know, whoever's number, you know, like Paul Skeens will slot in somewhere in the top five. And so whoever's in the top five now won't be in that same spot. So it is a living document, if you will. So we're not just bolting on a hundred, you know, 51 to a hundred. It's that we're re-ranking once we get more players to commit. So, and Reggie Crawford is on this list. And as we mentioned, he, uh, he may well sign. Right. Uh, so, and, and he could, he would then leave the list. Correct. Yeah. So it is, it is a living document. It is not just an expansion of the, it's not like the, the, you know, the, well, I guess the BAF hundred is a little bit like this too, but I know that Carlos goes from 200 to 300 to 500 at various points. And that's a little more of just like adding depth to the list. This is kind of a re-rank. So um, regardless, um, just a couple quick headlines from it. One is just the inescapable LSU of it all. 
Uh, I think it's six of the top 25 players committed That's to what LSU. The people tell me. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I, I did not know that. I mean, I knew there were a lot, uh, but I didn't quite know the extent of it until I saw that tweet. So, yeah, six of the top 25. There are some interesting guys in there, too. I mean, there are some sure things, right? Tommy White, like, okay, duh. He's the number one player on this list. Spoiler alert. Um, but, you know, they've got guys like Carter Young and Jack Pineda who could get drafted. Like there are some questions there. So they, they do have some unanswerables, but for the most part between white and Thatcher Hurd, if he's healthy, um, you know, Christian little is going to play a role depends on, you know, we, we don't know what that role is exactly just yet, but um, I mean, they've done some big time shopping in the portal. And I wrote about this during Omaha. I mean, look, all you have to do is look at what A&M did um, to see that, you know, and LSU was not in the dire situation, obviously. I mean, that was a regional team this year. They are not in the situation that AM was in, but what they did show is that, like, you know, chemistry be damned. And there was no evidence that it was a bad chemistry situation. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that's the big reason why some coaches might have been against building a roster this way is how do you mix that roster together? But AM showed that, like, you can do it, you can figure it out. And so, um, you know, LSU, to their credit, just kind of saying, yeah, why not? Let's, let's do this. And so, like they are, there's really no way around that being the big, whether you want to just say that, look at it, that's the Tommy White, because he is the, this era of transfers, he is the best player who has transferred. Um, I, I think I'd take him over Jacob Barry, although that's a debate. Um, that's a very reasonable debate to have. Yeah. Um, and also, once Paul Skeens commits, I mean, like we can debate on where exactly he lands, but if he intends to play two ways at his new school, like there is an argument to be made, I think for him. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, you know what? I guess I'm discounting Barry, Barry a little bit because his move was a little bit telegraphed. Right. So it's like Tommy white is the first, is the best player we've had who it's like, Holy crap. Tommy white is in the portal, you know, um, Jacob Barry going to LSU following Jay Johnson. It was kind of like, oh, okay, you know, we, we, we get that. Um, Frankly, it was like more of a surprise and every player has their reasons, but it was more surprised like, oh, uh, Susak is Daniel Susak is going to stay at Arizona, you know, um, especially when you consider that LSU uh, needed a catcher. Going well, into I, last like season. I remember because Susak initially was committed to Oregon State, decommitted and committed to Arizona when Nate Yeski went from Oregon State to Arizona. And so I just assumed that like either he's going to A&M or LSU now, and instead he stayed at Arizona and my understanding is some of that was just like, well, he knew he was a draft eligible sophomore. So was it worth uprooting for one season? Now, Jacob Berry looked at a similar decision as a draft eligible sophomore and said, yes, Daniel Susak came to a different conclusion. Here's the thing. And I feel like this, I, I don't want to make this into a like transfers are good or bad or what, like, I don't want to have that discussion. We should just talk about the players that are transferred, but most players most students, I feel like, do not want to transfer. Like, they pick a school for a reason, and, you know, they evaluate different situations differently, or the same situations differently. Two players, Jacob Berry, Daniel Susek, both looking to be in first-round picks after draft-eligible sophomore seasons, saw the same situation and came to two different conclusions. Right, and it's also important, I think, you know, I was, I was going to say this a little bit later when we start talking about maybe some individual cases, but players also have a lot of different reasons for transferring or not transferring. Now there's, there are some obvious ones, right? You're crushing it at a mid-major and you want to prove yourself in the sec. Got it. Um, you know, 
I was a highly ranked recruit that hasn't quite been able to cut it at my SEC program. I want to find somewhere where I'm going to be able to get a little more playing time or just be a little in a, in a less high pressure situation. Got it. Um, you know, there are a number of others. NIL money. I got it in NIL money. Great. Good for you. Got it. But there are a lot of like one-off cases. Uh, I'm staying because I have a girlfriend here. <laughs> you know, um, I'm staying here because I have a lot of friends here. I'm staying here because the academics make sense for me. Um, you know, you even, as much as we roll our eyes at this stuff, and you don't really see this on the high end, but there definitely also are cases where I don't necessarily want to transfer, but if I'm going to play a fifth year of college baseball, where I'm at now does not have either A, have a grad school at all, or B, does not offer the graduate program that I want to be in. Or um, like, it's really hard to get into Stanford's grad school. Like Jacob Palish was relatively open about that this year that like he left Stanford because he graduated and like, it's really hard to get into Stanford grad school. And, um, you know, it's just, it's not for everyone, you know? So the, the list here, uh, as it stands, Joe mentioned Tommy White at number one, he's going from NC state to, uh, to LSU and uh, Hurston Waldrop going from uh, Southern Miss to Florida. Those two guys were both All-Americans this year. Those, those are your one-two. And, um, you know, I, I don't think there's any any real, like, ambiguity about those guys. I, I feel like college baseball has a pretty good idea of who they are, especially Tommy Tanks. Um, you know, with uh, with what he did this year, setting the, the freshman record for home runs with, with 27, despite not even having a postseason, I suppose it should be said. And, uh, you know, Waldrop was, uh, was exceptional there for, uh, for Southern Miss in their outstanding rotation. So those two guys pretty well known. Maui Yahuna going from Kansas to, uh, to Tennessee and Thatcher Hurd, UCLA to LSU, uh, two relatively prominent recruits. I think here when we get to number five, though, we start maybe getting to players uh, who are uh, a little less well known. And Luke Kieschel checks in here at five, San Francisco to Arizona State. He's, uh, he's a guy that was really good on the Cape Cod League uh, a year ago. That was kind of his breakout situation. Uh, he'd been really good in the Cal Ripken League earlier in the summer and then got called up to the Cape for the second half and uh, continued to hit really well there. His, he, he's just a hitter, period. And um, Arizona State, I mean, we, we've talked about LSU and maybe we will can talk even more about what LSU has done in the portal, but uh, just in terms of other schools, schools outside the SEC, because a lot of SEC schools are doing well in the portal. Arizona State went heavy in the portal this year, and uh, Luke Kieschel's uh, one of the, the bigger prizes to come out of that, as is uh, uh, Ross Dunn, who goes from, from Florida State to uh, to Arizona State. Yeah, it, the, the schools that really did a lot of heavy lifting here are kind of a, a, a grab bag, and, and in most cases, you kind of understand it. You know, LSU, obviously, it's because they are just in pursuit of the absolute best. And every team does this, right? But, like, they are just in dogged pursuit of, like, the single, the best 35 guys they can put on the 35-man roster, right? And so, like, they're going to do that all over the place. And they they can do that because kids want to play at LSU and, and there's just opportunity there. And maybe you throw in a little NIL money, whatever it is. That's where they're coming at from there. Arizona State down here in 2022, like clearly a roster that needs to get a little bit of a, a jolt. Like Willie Bloomquist actually kind of inherited a relatively old roster that kind of 
had a lot of guys on it who have been around a while that maybe have like some struggles in their past, like on the, on the field. I mean, that, that sounded like more <laughs> sinister than I meant it to be like some personal struggles. No, just like struggle. A, divor- a lot of, uh, you know, personal divorces that they've gone That's through right. and, uh, yeah. you know, they've, uh, they, they just really, really some tough job situations that they're dealing <laughs> right. with. And- Yes. Some tough moves. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but no, just like struggles in the field, injuries. Like it's kind of an older roster that kind of, um, you know, hasn't all come together, right? So it feels like they're kind of just trying to overhaul things there. So that one makes a little sense. Kentucky is playing big in the portal again. That's clearly at this point just kind of like a strategy that Nick Mangione and his staff are employing there. Um, South Carolina is kind of in a similar situation. Like they're clearly just going to be playing a lot in the portal now. That's well, also I think a situation South Carolina is where... a cross between Kentucky and Arizona State, and that they're trying to get yeah, better. For sure, South Carolina knows that 2023 has to be better. Like, period, end of story. And so, like, yes, you're right. That is another one that's kind of a surprise. That when we talk about on the program level, is is Texas A&M's at it again? And like, it's good players. So it's not like it's not like you know, I'm looking at it and, and casting it aside for that reason or casting a side glance at it for that reason. Um, it's that I just didn't expect them to do this a second year. Now, I guess some of it maybe is precipitated by the fact that like, yes, you had some grad transfers, Dylan Rock and, and Cole Kaler and Troy Clonch. And so those guys have to be, have to, uh, those spots have to get filled. Um, but I just kind of thought, that they would be in a more traditional recruiting situation now after that first year, especially after they had the success of it uh, in the portal in the first year. Although I guess you could also look at that as a reason to do it again, but yeah, I, I think that that is, is the situation here that I think they intended to do at more high school, but they saw what worked this year and why not try it again? Yeah. So, I mean, those are kind of the schools and, and we'll see some other schools, you know, that there's some schools kind of in the middle, like that, that, I mean, those are the really the schools that are like really taking on a high number you know, Tennessee is doing a lot, doing a lot. Uh, TCU is doing quite a bit, especially on the mound. I, I think Mississippi state is worth a mention yes, here because that, I did, I did miss that one. Yep. Yep. If um, you know what you saw this year from Auburn and AM is that you can go from the bottom of the sec to Omaha. And I don't want to just say it was entirely through transfers because it wasn't at either one of those schools, uh, but transfers were a big reason why both of those schools went from um Auburn finished uh, a 12th and AM finished 13th, 14th um, a year ago in, uh, in, in, in the SEC standings. And then they ended up this year in Omaha, that kind of turnaround. That's what Mississippi state is going for. They were last in, in the SEC this year. They've gone heavy in the portal. They have a strong recruiting class. They are trying to not necessarily totally flip the roster, but just inject a lot of talent into the roster because of course, that's not a place where they are used to residing, especially as the reigning national champs. Yeah, exactly. So, um, look, and that's just more evidence that, I mean, look at the teams we're talking about here. Um, and there are some mid-majors that really play a lot in this space. But, I mean, we're talking about some of the biggest brands in the sport. We're talking about a lot of power conference programs. Um, that's what this is. Um, so anybody who is kind of, hoped or just thought that this thing would kind of, and I think water will find its level eventually. I mean, we we talk about some of these situations where, you know, you've got multiple shortstops coming to campus or, you know, we we talked about Reggie Crawford. What, what would he do at Tennessee if he, if he ends up at Tennessee? 
Um, so water does find its level because there are sometimes you find out there are good and bad sides of, of transferring. And so I do think there is a little bit of a fever here that might that might break a little, but it's certainly not going away. It's always going to be as long as the rules exist in the way they do now. It is always going to be um, a big part of building a program. And I just think that's kind of kind of where we are now. Um, I mean, you wrote about that uh, in Omaha that. Right. Look around the real exception of just Stanford, who has an academic situation, everyone here in Omaha has, has transfers playing a significant role. Yeah. Like where, even on the, you know, even for the teams that weren't doing a ton, like where would Oklahoma have been without Trevin Michael? Right. Um, you know, obviously A&M was, was, was playing heavily in it and, uh, Ole Miss had, you know, John Gaddis and Jack Washburn through important innings. Um, you know, so even if the, the, the non-obvious teams, I think we're, we're getting a lot from the from the transfer portal. I think the big difference in this year and last year, um, and this makes sense, this stands to reason, but the depth of what's in the transfer portal this year is so much better than it was last year. And, you know, last year that makes sense because the, the one-time transfer exception legislation got passed in late April or got approved in late April of last year. So that's not a lot of lead time before players at least uh, – theoretically needed to be in the portal to be able to take advantage of that. Um, so there was that, I think there was also like a little bit of timidness on the, and I think we, we talked about this actually in the immediate aftermath of it. I think if you're a player, you were kind of like, well, I could do this, but we haven't seen what the ramifications are going to be like. And then again, you look at, Oh, there's transfers all over the place in Omaha and in the postseason, and uh, you know, winning, winning awards, being all Americans, um, so I think that did kind of open up a lot of players' eyes to, oh, okay, this is this is maybe not as scary as I, I thought it was going to be. And so I think all of that has conspired to create a situation where the depth this year is just kind of off the charts where you look at it and you've got guys who play on the collegiate national team as low as 13 on this list with, with Jordan Sprinkle, who spent the summer of 2021 there. Um, you know, Ross Dunn at number 10 was on the collegiate national team, the training camp roster. Did he make the final cut? Uh, he's, he's there right now. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, on the collegiate national team right now, uh, at number 10, and you just didn't see that last year. Um, there are a lot of guys who didn't make the top 50, who probably would have been in the twenties, low thirties at bare minimum, uh, on last year's, on last year's list. It's just, I, I just incredible year over year, how much how much more depth there is. And I think there is a certain type of transfer to that you're, you're seeing this year in some places that you didn't see last year. So the most common transfers we saw last year were, I mean, obviously coaching changes can catalyze some of this, but also just, you know, the high end recruit that flamed out maybe in their first stop, that's looking for a new lease, the, the mid-major player who wants to prove himself at the, at the, at a higher level. That's another one. But you're seeing guys this year, and again, this is where I go back before I use specific examples. Players transfer for a million individual reasons, more so than one unifying reason. It is a very individual decision that a lot of is based on a lot of information that you or I or anyone else is, is not really privy to. But you look at some guys this year, um, like Dylan Tabrock, frankly, you know, a top 10 pitcher putting up really good numbers at Creighton. Um, like that's creating a good program. Um, that's kind of a, a player that typically like you would not have expected to go even a better example. I would say you go a little bit further down and at number I'm scrolling number 21, you have Zane Denton 
who was a starting third baseman in the SEC at Alabama, who is now going to Tennessee. And that in particular, like to Brock is one thing, like, okay, Creighton is, t- is technically a mid-major. Yes, it's a good mid-major. Yes, they have amenities because they get to play in Charles Schwab Field and, and all of that. But to, to be a starting position player at a team that went to a regional in 2021 um, was, you know, pretty good in, in 2022. Um, and then to transfer to another SEC program is, is not really something that we saw last year that I think is different about this year. And there are examples um, kind of up and down this list that are that way where it's not an obvious hey, this was a misfit for a program and player. Hey, this was a guy who needed more playing time. Hey, this is a guy who's trying to jump up a level. Um, there are just more guys who just, for, for whatever reason that we'll never know, just kind of decided they wanted something a little bit different for a reason that's not blatantly obvious in the way that almost all transfers were last year. Uh, one thing rolling through this list that I am a little bit surprised about is some schools that aren't on the list. Uh, And one of them, in fairness to Stankiewicz and the rest of the staff at USC, is that like they just got there. (laughs) Like the the hire the hire was not complete until pretty late. But uh, USC, where's where's USC? Um, All of their transfers are leaving right now. Um, And I'm a little surprised Clemson isn't on here. And Clemson had a pretty solid roster. A year ago, they were close to being a tournament team anyway, but I just might have expected Eric Backage to play a little more heavily in the portal. Um, I don't know if that's a sign of things to come for Clemson. A lot of work that they've done so far, it seems like has been flipping their recruits rather than recruiting transfers. And, you know, that's all, that's fine. They have good recruits. They had good recruits at Michigan. Uh, but really all they've done in terms of transfer, at least on this list, is bringing Willie Weiss with them. And I guess I'm just a little surprised that that they didn't they aren't playing a little heavier. Is there anyone else that, that you noticed that you're maybe a little surprised about? I guess we could also throw Texas Tech in here, although they have gotten more active lately. Yeah, I think I think Clemson's a good one. Um, I had not really thought about that question before you posed it, but Clemson is a good one just because it's USC is. So I agree with you on USC generally because like they finished last in the Pac-12. It's a coaching change. Like, yeah, I got to do something here. Um, but you can at least not of, the easiest thing to get into, though, like talking about cool. like it's a yeah. good school. Correct. It costs it, it is expensive and it, it has, you know, some academic standards that aren't going to uh, cut it for everybody. Right. The admission admissions is not an easy thing to pass, even if you get some some favors there. But. Um, although I guess I shouldn't say admissions favors at USC because hey. people might assume that <laughs> <laughs> we're a little extra favors there, but um, so like USC at least is tricky. Um, but yeah, Clemson, that's no disrespect, but it's, you know, it's a public school. Um, you know, it, you figure most of the guys they'd be looking at would, would be able to get in and it would be just fine. Um, so yeah, the, the fact that they're not doing that, um, you know, Backage was a fairly slow burn at Michigan, though. I mean, uh, so maybe that's kind of the way he's he's approaching this, although I would say that Clemson has a different level of expectation and is, is kind of rightfully probably a little, getting a little impatient. Um, so that is kind of kind of surprising there. I think related to the USC situation, which also relates to the Grand Canyon situation, is something you and I have talked about offline is that there were situations where, well, let me put it this way. It is just going to be part of doing business now that when you fire a coach, 
the the entire team is going to go in the transfer portal, like give or take the entire team. And I'm not so sure it's a smart approach to try to do something to save that I and get guys back on campus. Like it worked out well for Grand Canyon because Greg Wallace was an obvious candidate. Like it made sense. And yes, oh, by the way, we're going to hold on to the players that would have otherwise left most of them anyway. But so that's, that's, that's an edge case. I think generally speaking though, like I just don't think playing defense against the transfer portal is probably going to be a winning strategy moving forward. I'll be kind of fascinated to see how schools navigate that. Cause you and I have both gotten information from people that kind of talks about that topic. And it does seem like it's a very open question about how, how schools will proceed with that because it's like, let's be honest too, like from a baseball standpoint, like that's one thing, but there is also like from an administrative standpoint, I do think there is a different pressure on athletic directors when it's a situation where people are looking at your entire team is in the transfer portal. And I think administrators tend to have a different viewpoint on that a little bit sometimes about like, well, why are all these players leaving? Like we need to keep them. We can't have this level of turnover. It looks bad. The optics, yada, yada, yada. That's not me using any specific situation, but I could see that it's a different, whereas a baseball coach might be like, well, uh, you know, I, I kind of welcomed maybe the turnover a little bit. Um, but anyway, I think that's just going to be something fascinating to watch because I do think you saw in the coaching cycle this year some movement based on trying to play defense against a transfer portal. And I just, I just, this is just Joe's opinion. I don't think that's going to be a winning strategy. Yeah, I don't think it's much of a long-term strategy. It's a nice short-term strategy if you can pull it off right. Um, but I don't. That that should not be your long-term thinking. And that's to me what a coaching hire is. And uh, Joe has provided us with the segue here and so we're going to take it and that's that Notre Dame made a hire they hired Sean Stifler uh, from VCU and I don't mean like I don't mean to put Notre Dame on the spot and, and make them an example of what we were just talking about but there is a school that like look Link Jarrett left very late in the cycle it was late June when he accepted the job at Florida State um, Notre Dame took its time. They took about three weeks to make the hire and they feel like they made a good hire. And I think they should feel like they made a good hire. Sean Stifler is a really good coach. He took VCU to super regionals in 2015 and had them a win away from super regionals this year. Um, they've made regionals in back-to-back seasons, which is no easy feat from the A-10. Um, I, I think there's a lot to be said for what Sean Stifler is and, and his resume and all the rest of it. Notre Dame could have acted much more rashly in, in the moment and done something else, I'm sure. Um, but they also took their time when they hired Link Jared. And I, I saw a lot of people in college baseball, uh, maybe some of them were Notre Dame fans, maybe some of them more, and I didn't like take the time to click on Twitter profiles or any of the rest of the places I saw this, but like, why is Notre Dame moving so slow and like snail's pace and all the rest of this. And like, I felt that way when they were taking their time to hire Link Jarrett four years ago, three years ago, whatever that was. Um, But I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt this time because it worked out so well for them a year or three years ago when they hired Link Jarrett. So if this is their process, that's fine. Like it seems to, it, it worked real well then maybe it'll, it like it landed them another really good coach. Like I think it can work really well again. So I don't know. I would generally take my take Notre Dame is 
somewhat unique. They are selling, I guess, not somewhat unique. They are just, they're in a different plane than a lot of schools because the Notre Dame degree is what it is. The school is what it is. Like, it's a very, you are going to Notre Dame for reasons beyond sports in many cases. Like, you're going to Notre Dame because this is a dream school or because you want that degree or, you know, whatever. There are reasons that, that there are a lot of reasons why they draw the students that they draw. So maybe they have less to fear in the portal, but, you know, they, uh, I, I just, uh, I appreciate the approach that they took and who they landed on these last two times. And yeah, maybe that was slower than you would like it to be. And who knows all of the reasons why that was the case, but the results seem like they should be pretty good. Yeah, on paper, I think that's about right. I mean, it's a very similar profile to what Ling Jarrett was as, at least in terms of his head coaching experience, Jarrett had a more extensive past as an assistant at various places. But, um, you know, Jarrett came from UNC Greensboro and was doing a good job there and was kind of the type of, it was a type of situation where unless you're really paying attention, you wouldn't know how how good UNC Greensboro had had gotten under him because I think it was, you know, typical mid-major type of situation where it's like, you know, there were a lot of years they were really good and just didn't win the SoCon tournament and therefore their season was over. Um, you know, VCU actually has has been a little more consistent the last couple of years getting into the postseason, but they've also run into seasons like that. So VCU similarly, um, because that 2015 Super Regional appearance is, you know, I mean, that's ancient history for, for a lot of folks, especially, you know, when you talk recruiting and, and people who are just now picking up college baseball. But you know, VCU was really good under Sean Stifler. Like it was kind of the default A10 um, preseason pick every year. And that was looking like smarter and smarter money with each passing year. And, um, you know, he was, he was working with some limitations. You know, they, they, VCU invested in a big way in, in the player development side. They have player development facilities that are um, better than anything else in the A10 and, and better than a lot of, of much bigger, more prominent baseball programs but they were playing in an old minor league facility that has like all of the negatives of playing in a minor league facility and like none of the positives, which like with Durham Bulls athletic park for Duke is that it's like, you know, right in the middle of downtown and is like, has really good amenities and it's kind of a community thing. Like, you know, it's my understanding that the diamond in Richmond is not that. Um, and playing in a league like the A-10 that frankly, and I've, I've heard this from enough people to know that it's true. Like the A-10 is not just, about half committed to baseball. You got a handful of programs that really care. You've got a lot of programs that not on the coach level, obviously, but on the administrative level, just aren't invested. Um, and that's tough in that league. It's also a really tough geographic league. So in, in the face of that, he did a really good job and made VCU a consistent winner there. Um, so I don't think that can be undersold. It's a pretty similar, like I said, a pretty similar profile to what Link Jarrett brought to the table. I also think with the timing thing for Notre Dame, um, they are a program to your point that because of who they are they're I mean, they're probably always just going to want to take their time with it, but also like, yes, link Jarrett brought immediate success and they will take that if it comes. But I think they're also understanding a little bit of the bigger picture here versus just the kind of let's make sure the 2023 team is as good as it can be. I think they kind of understand that at Notre Dame, you are probably going to have to be a program that sees the forest better than you see the the trees, if, if that makes sense. Uh, one other bit of news I wanted to touch on here, and that is the MEAC 
uh, and the Northeast Conference on Tuesday, that was yesterday, Tuesday, announced a partnership, a multi-sports partnership, or a sport or a partnership that spans multiple sports. Basically, what it means is that the MEAC schools that play baseball and both men's and women's golf are now going to play those sports as affiliate members or associate members in the NEC. So the MEAC, from a baseball perspective, is dead. Uh, and the four schools that were, were playing baseball in the MEAC are now a part of the NEC. And they made this move because you have to have six teams in your conference uh, to get an automatic bid in the NCAA tournament. The MEAC last year applied for a waiver and got one, uh, but the NCAA Division I Baseball Committee made it pretty clear last August that that was a one-off and that they weren't going to be so open to giving them a waiver again. Uh, they really only gave them that waiver because one of the reasons that the MEAC dropped to four teams was because like, if they had five teams, they automatically get a two-year waiver to you know, get the situation corrected. But when you drop a four to four, you have to like actually apply for the waiver and they have to listen to your arguments and all the rest of it. And so one of the reasons they gave them this waiver was because North Carolina Central dropped baseball uh, in part because of what they said were COVID related budget cuts. Uh, so that made the committee a little more sympathetic to them and gave them that waiver, but they were not expecting to get that waiver moving forward. So now uh, their schools still have access to the postseason. Uh, and there are only 30 auto bids in baseball. So the, the bubble in future seasons just got that much more um, favorable for, uh, for, for teams trying to uh, get in as at-large teams. Bit of a mutually beneficial situation too. The, I mean, the MEAC teams were up against it. They, they had to figure something out. Um, also, the Northeast Conference, you know, Bryant headed out to the America East. Uh, Mount St. Mary's headed out to the Metro Atlantic. Um, so they, they didn't have the numbers problem that the MEAC had, but they were down to uh, seven. Yeah. They, they were not, not <laughs> kind of getting into the danger zone. So a little mutually beneficial situation I, there. And that was seven so, with a division two team and Stonehill coming in this year. So right. it would have been six without Stonehill. Yeah. So, you know, just a, just a kind of a mutually beneficial move gives safe Harbor to the MEAC teams, allows the NEC to kind of not sweat having to lose, auto bid status are being in a little bit more trouble there. So I think it just, it just makes sense all around. Yeah. And um, I, I think it is a little unfortunate that one of the two HBCU conferences, the SWAC being the other in division one now no longer is sponsoring baseball. And therefore you'll have one less HBCU guaranteed to be in the field. Um, you know, that, that is somewhat unfortunate. It also though is not, you know, so some of that's not really anyone's fault. It's just that two of the teams that left the MEAC are now in the SWAC. So, um, you know, the, the SWAC has gotten bigger and stronger and the MEAC is, uh, is fighting it a little bit. So a little bit unfortunate that there will be less HBCU representation, at least in a guaranteed way in, uh, in the NCAA tournament. But uh, the, the situation in the MEAC was untenable as a, conference completely like they need to be looking at expansion they are looking at expansion because their football auto bid is also like they're sitting right on the edge 
uh, but they haven't been able to figure out the expansion aspect of it. So this is this is just where they are right now. And so uh, I'm glad that these uh, these four schools were able to find a, a spot where they can continue to uh, to compete for an auto bid. All right, that's going to do it for us today on the Baseball America College podcast. Um, reminder, we are in our off-season mode, it being the off-season, so that means once a week you can find us, uh, and you can find us wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, hit the follow button, the subscribe button, whatever it is on, on your favorite platform, and we come at you once a week throughout the off-season. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And all of the written work is over at baseballamerica.com where you can find Joe's transfer list and the BA 500 and all that other other wonderful draft content, um, both previewing the draft and then next week once the, uh, once the draft begins. We'll be back here next week with another edition post-draft to talk about uh, how things went uh around the around the college baseball world in relation uh to the draft uh so until then thank you all for listening uh for joe i'm teddy we'll talk to you next time